When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around, set around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And then it continues in verse 24. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Word of the Lord. Good morning. That was pitiful. Good morning. Um, as many of you know, I work as a mental health counselor in an ER. Um, I meet a lot of people in substance use recovery who come to the ER for help. What I've learned is that there's a subset of people who, who just need a little encouragement, a push in the right direction. There are other people who, whose lives are very tumultuous. Um, when they come to me for help. And they're asking for forms of help that virtually don't exist. And they often find themselves taking one step forward and two steps back, even in coming to the ER. One of the difficult things about the system for getting help is that in order for mass health insurance or most private insurances to kick in and agree for, to pay for things like inpatient treatment or detox treatment, there have to be measurable safety risks, such as risk to harm of self or other, or a person has to be, in fact, withdrawing from a substance where there's a medical, medical risk associated with detoxing. Those in, the insurance, uh, those in insurance may be familiar with the phrase medical necessity criteria. So, so when there aren't these risks to safety, when these medical necessity criteria isn't met, the type of insurance-driven help available to a person is usually more self-organized, self-managed, like getting a counselor, going to AA or NA, or getting a sponsor. The first subset of people I described, uh, this works for them. But for those whose lives are a bit more unmanaged, this doesn't feel like it's enough. And so a lot of times people will come to the hospital with a little bit of coaching on what to do or what to say in order to get placed in a managed care environment. It's almost like there's a little book out there that exists that says how to get people to listen to you when you need help. But in the process, they get caught in a catch-22. Um, many of the people only at risk for relapsing will in fact relapse so they can go to detox. But then if there isn't a detox facility available nearby, ERs typically won't hold a person overnight, and a person who's just relapsed to get help uh, in managing their addiction are now in an even more vulnerable place than before. They're one step forward and two steps back. 
The plight of men, and there are a lot more examples like that. The plight of many people in recovery, at least in the level of emergency services response, is that sometimes you have to get a whole lot worse uh, to qualify for services that in the end are designed to only get you over the hump of things that are deemed medically necessary. Even then, sometimes it's a gamble in terms of the quality of care you might get. At least in the system as I see it as a provider, there are a whole lot of setbacks, a whole lot of discouragements, a whole lot of people side-railed from treatment who decide to get off the train of recovery. One step forward, two steps back. So here we are in our text, um, in Ezra. We're, we're at a turning point in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Until now, the Jewish people experience progress in their life towards their hoped-for city. Um, but from this point going forward, right to the end of Nehemiah, there's going to be conflict. One step forward, two steps back. Nothing that is attempted for God will go unchallenged. There are setbacks, discouragement, and a halted train. In our passage, we learn that if we're seeking renewal, if we're genuinely seeking God, we should expect opposition. About 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem with a call from God to reestablish worship, to rebuild the temple, and to reaffirm their nation's relationship with God. And God tells them, begin again, worship again, join my story again. But this assignment is difficult. When opposition strikes, as we see in this passage, the work of the temple stops. An unfinished foundation sits there for nearly 20 years. Who here is under 20 years old? There are a few people not raising their hands, but that's okay. It's longer than you've been alive. It is a long time. The Jews were still in the land, but there was no center of worship. And so they settled in and, and they got caught up in the necessities of life. That is, until God stirred up in the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who got the, the project of temple building moving again, which is how our chapter ends. It, it looks forward with hope to a time when the project is getting started again. Now, as we turn to our text, in order to understand who this first group of people is, in, in verse 1, who, who's called adversaries or enemies of the Jews, we'll have to explore the context a little bit. So verse, in verse 2, the spokesperson of this people group says, we worship the same God as you. They claim to be faithful people of the God of Israel. They say, we've been sacrificing to him ever since we settled here. They say, it was a king of Assyria who brought us here. On face value, they don't appear to be, as verse 1 claims, adversaries of the Jews. Assyria certainly was an enemy of Israel, but Assyria itself was defeated. This was a people that was planted, and they're, they're the overnation has been changed. They've, they've changed hands twice since then, from uh, Assyria to Babylon and now to Persia. That's not a lot to go off of. Um, the, the, but we do have a little bit of more context in another part of Scripture, actually, to tell us about these people. 2 Kings chapter 17 tells us a little bit about these people of Samaria. As many of you will know, prior to the exile in Babylon, Israel was, for a very short amount of time, a, a, a united nation, a united kingdom under King David and Solomon. After Solomon and because of his sins, the kingdom divides. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. 
So while neither kingdom is perfect, the kingdom of Israel in the north was markedly more wicked. The leaders from the north were especially prone to idolatry, marrying the daughters of the pagan neighboring kings. The most famous that I can think of is Jezebel. They cut themselves off from the worship down south in the temple in Jerusalem, and one king moves their capital to Samaria. And so, so Israel becomes Samaria, this northern kingdom. So when Israel is overrun by Assyria, the whole land is left uninhabited. And politically speaking, in this time, this was not a wise plan for the, this overruling nation. Um, Israel, that, that place in the Fertile Crescent, was, uh, uh, had lots of major trade routes going through uh, the land. It's highly contested and highly desirable. And so we see in 2 Kings 17 that the king of Assyria brought in new people from all over the place to settle in that land of Samaria. So these aren't, these aren't the Israelites. These are people from all over the place that resettle there. Um, and according to the account in 2 Kings 17, these people living in Samaria did not know God at first. It's actually pretty humorous. After an incident with rogue lions attacking people in Samaria, it was believed that the regional God of the land, whoever he was, he wasn't happy with them because the people didn't know what he required. And so the Assyrian king at the time sent back a lone Israelite priest who'd been taken into, into captivity by the Samaritans to build up a worship site. Second king tells us that they, they worship the Lord, but also they serve their own gods too. Uh, the, writing of, uh, the writer of Kings comments um, that their worship is uninspired. They neither worship the Lord nor adhere to his decrees and regulations, it says. They would not listen to God's exclusivity claims, worship me and me alone, or follow the demands of the covenant. So even while these people were worshiping the Lord, making their sacrifices in that temple, they were serving idols, other gods. And the, the, the book, uh, the chapter ends this way. It says, to this day, their children and grandchildren continue to do as their ancestors did. So to be clear, many of the Jewish elders, I mean, they would have known this group of people from Samaria even before the time of the exile, because we know that, that some people had seen the temple in its, in its former glory. They, they'd gone off. They, they probably knew the people that lived up north. They'd settled there long before the exile. So this group of people, while claiming to worship Yahweh, they actually were just relating to the Jews probably the same way that they related to all of their, their neighbors. Um, they, they approach the God as a regional God with limited power and authority whose claims of exclusivity they don't accept. These Samaritans aren't allies in reestablishing worship with a heart to reaffirm the nation's covenantal relationship with God. They are the blind offering to lead the seeing. They are the compromise seeking to guide those set apart. And of course, the, the leaders of Israel are rebuilding more than just a temple. It's more than just a building project. They have accepted that their exile was the result of their own compromise, their own sin, their own lapsed faithfulness. They're seeking to reaffirm the nation's unique and unwavering, unwavering covenantal relationship with God, the only God, the true God, the God whose holiness required a clean slate during the first exile, the time of Joshua and the conquest. The God who said, do not intermarry among the Canaanites because they will turn your sons and daughters away from following me and serve other gods. Now, holiness means being set apart. And to, to them, this meant having strong national boundaries. 
because to them, spiritual compromise fails to take root in a bed of strong boundaries. I'll say that again. Spiritual compromise fails to take root in a bed of strong boundaries. But this stance, this, this stance of being set apart, it offends their neighbors to the north and gives them reason to become a thorn in their side, opposing any progress they might make towards rebuilding the temple and becoming this people set apart. Now, people of God, if we are seeking renewal, we should expect opposition. The Samaritans use about any means at their disposal, overt and covert, to trouble the temple builders. Verses 4 and 5 tell us, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the Samaritans discouraged the people of Judah. They made them afraid to continue building. They used their politi political leverage and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Possibly these are the people that had money and resources at their, that, that had been promised to Israel and who had a hand over the movement of, of goods um, from Lebanon and other places where they needed these materials to build the temple. They had the power to make things very difficult. Now, personally, I have experienced the power of politics working in your favor. Some of you will know that uh, my mental health license was held in limbo for, for some time, being processed, and I'll put that in quotes, being processed for months and months. I sent many emails to the licensing board, left many phone calls and uh, many messages with no replies, no communication. I had no idea what was going on. Finally, I reached out to a congress, congressman who replied to me the next day, and he said, uh, look, kid, this isn't a federal issue. <laughs> I can't help you, but I know who can. And so he sent an email to a state senator who emails me and says, oh, we can reach out to the board, our contact over at the board. Literally eight minutes later, after getting that email, I get a response from the licensing board. That is politics working for you. Now imagine politics working against you. These are people that have power to give and take away. The Samaritans seem like they'll do anything short of sedition to set themselves against the Jews and their vocation of building the temple and being a pure people. Verse 6 uh, tells us that they also wrote an accusation, um, probably to the king of Persia. Now, in terms of chronology, there's, there's a big gap between here and the, the end of the letter, but, but actually, chronologically, that's what come ne comes next. So, so what, what Rob K. read is actually chronologically correct, even though you're going to see something else in the text. Um, and that, I would say that those letters are, are in the middle. Um, so these are letters written during the time of Nehemiah, probably some 80 years later. They're, they're grouped there because thematically it points to the fact that the Jews had external opposition that frustrated their existence as a people set apart. It's clear that this text focuses on those external pressures that the Jews faced. But make no mistake, I'll say this clearly, but make no mistake that there, were, there was internal opposition as well. If we're seeking renewal, we should expect opposition. We should expect setbacks. Two steps forward, one step back. But that opposition isn't always going to come from the outside. 
Remember, verse 2 describes Israel as being discouraged and being afraid to build. Discouraged and afraid are two things people in situations can certainly try to make you, but they say courage is feeling fear and doing it anyway. Whatever it is that makes you afraid. Courage is feeling afraid and doing the thing anyway. Where was their courage? External pressure can spit in the face of courage, but courage presses forward anyways. Now, I would say this is where the prophet Haggai comes onto the scene. So Haggai is one of the minor prophets we find in the Old Testament, who's actually contemporary to what's going on right now. He, his is a small book, a little book, and if, you, if you're motivated, you can find it later today. Um, it's a prophecy that has the, the ability to reshape your perspective, uh, reignite your will, and, and give you the courage to press on, and, and that's actually what it does. So Haggai speaks during this time, during the time when the temple project had ceased, when they'd gotten off the train. This is what, what is said in Haggai. So the word of the Lord came to Haggai, confronted Israel's complacency and misguided priorities, saying, those are my words, not God's words. These are God's words. These, these people say that the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Haggai says, take a good look around. God says, I've frustrated your settlement and withheld prosperity from you. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so and puts them in a bag with holes. Why is this? Because my house lies in ruins. Worship is not at the center of who you are and what you do. You remnant of my people that I brought back to Israel to rebuild and reestablish a relationship with me, you're neglecting the first thing. Therefore, I called a drought on your land. But God says, and this is the turning point of the book, God says, but I'm with you. And that's no small thing. God says, I'm with you. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Oh, you who despise small things. God says, fear not, be strong, work, for I am with you. And God promises, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will shake all the nations. So all the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And this, in this place, I will give peace. So God says you can go on living, building your kingdom, this city into the sky, but if you push me to the sidelines, then I will frustrate your ambitions. He says, instead, take courage, keep building, get back on the train, and see, from this day on, I will bless you. That's how the book ends. What Haggai shows us is that while there, were external, uh, th there was external opposition, many people had just gone about concluding, the time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. Womp, womp. The time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord. This is just a smokescreen for their own fear and complacency. They have halted internally and focused their attention on the daily grind of life, trying to make, trying to make it, trying to get by. 
What the people needed at this time is the courage that comes from God's promise, the hope that comes from God's promise that I am with you, I am for you, but you cannot write me out of your story. It's not all about money. It's not all about just waiting for open doors. It's about courage. People of God, if we are seeking renewal, we should expect opposition. If we're building anew, we should expect that the enemy of our souls is not going to like it. If we're seeking to live lives set apart for God, we should expect that people will not understand and they probably won't like it either. Ezra chapter 4 is not simply about a building project come to a halt. This is about God calling his people back into a relationship with his, himself, a faithful, uh, exclusive relationship with himself, a life where worship is at the center of everything you do. However, however, allow me this. While the general principle is true that God's people experience opposition when they're earnestly seeking him, there are big differences between how the Christians, how Christians are called to relate to outsiders and how the return, uh, those uh, returned exiles did. Their notion of faithfulness, in fact, their response to God's being a jealous God was to build up a dividing wall of legal purity that excluded these half-Jew, half-Gentile Samaritans. They rejected an offer to help, seeing it as an op opening the door to religious compromise and possible syncretism, which was to build a fence around the law. There's no law that says you can't accept help in building. You can't invite people into your lives. There's no mistaking that this second temple uh, scrupulous purity code gave rise to the Pharisees who Jesus would later rebuke, saying, they tie heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now, as Christians, we're told to expect persecution, and we're told to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I'll say that again. As, as Christians, we're told to expect persecution, and... It's not but, and we're told to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Pray for our troublers. Pray for our opponents. We aren't told to shut up the walls of the church to anyone who might resist us. I'd say we can do this because of Christ. Christ is the latter glory of the temple that's prophesied in Haggai. According to Ephesians, Christ removed the dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles because he set aside in his flesh the law, with, the law with all its commands and regulations. Christ fulfilled the demands of the law and invites us into life with God because Christ is our peace. That's how Ephesians puts it. Through Christ, I think we can take a missional stance and go out as witnesses into the homes of tax collectors and sinners, so-called sinners. We, we do this with the confidence that if we are doing the work of ministry, it's not as though we can be tinged with a color that Christ's blood does not make clean. And we can't assume that um, anyone has an impenetrable defense, has impenetrable opposition. In fact, some of those with the hardest set against Christianity are the, those closest to, to conversion, to salvation. Because even as we're seeking renewal, God is seeking us and preparing our hearts for renewal. This was my granddad's story, actually. Um, until the end, 
anytime you brought up God, you'd think he'd forgotten his coat. <laughs> he would put up his hands like this, he'd cross his arms, and he'd get pretty uncomfortable. Um, in fact, a pastor saw through my granddad's resistance, saw my granddad's internal search for peace, and knew that Christ is the only one who could give him that peace. This was Paul the Apostle's story, the one who so-called was kicking against the goads. Paul's story proves that, that those who might resist God this day, tomorrow may become the champion of the gospel. Our approach as Christians is different than the approach of the, the Israelites or the Jews in this, in this setting. But the lesson remains true. If we're seeking renewal, we should expect opposition. But take courage because God is on the side of renewal. If we're seeking renewal, expect opposition. But take courage because God is on the side of renewal. God wants renewal. God wants you to be so close it's scary to him. Jesus calls us to be the light of the world. This is a vision that requires a heart that's renewed. Are you ready to live as a light to the world? He calls his church to be a city set, in, set on a hill. Are you ready to live your faith publicly? Jesus calls his church to be the salt of the earth. Are you ready to be God-flavored seasoning? God has good plans for us. But he asks us to be a renewed people. He calls us to push through our own resistance to putting him at the center of everything we do. He comes to us today, even today, and says, why has this building, why has the building ceased? Take courage, keep building, get back on the train, because I'm with you. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that yours is a message of hope, um, that you actually give us the answer uh, to, to all of our deepest needs. And, and you, you both promise and fulfill those promises in Christ. Um, I thank you that you give us the courage to, to love our enemies, which is no easy task, but it is possible through your Holy Spirit. And I do ask that you would give us opportunities to build your kingdom through our witness, whether that is through our words or our deeds or our friendships or our legacy. We pray that you would do this through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.